Wine Monk, Arizona Wine Podcast by Cody Vladimir Burkett. Afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. I'm the Arizona Wine Monk, Cody Vladimir Burkett. I'm here with Jeremiah Craig, editor actually for my podcast, and he's passing through today. And so he's like, hey, why don't we do a podcast? And I was like, okay, what are you feeling? Red, white, or rosé? I'm thinking red or rosé, he replies. Okay. So it comes up and there's, you know, 20 bottles laid out here. It's like, choose. Choose wisely. Yeah. It, <laughs> it definitely took me a minute. That's for sure. So what we settled on was the 2011 Sangiovese from Golden Rule Vineyards. I've had a decanting in the pretty decanter, which really does not do much of anything for it. Um, it's one of those wonderful gifts that my parents give. And it's like, oh, we got you this really pretty decanter. It is really that, pretty. That doesn't let very much air in the top. <laughs> no, it's, it's not going to be a good... Uh, Only slightly more than the bottle itself. Yeah, but, you know, it's pretty. It and, is pretty. And Sangiovese is, I think, just a pretty grape out here. Color out here, and, and Sangiovese is just killer. And this is a darker Sangiovese, too. Uh, what I was telling you just before we started, when you were commenting about how everything is so green right now, is uh, that Sangiovese is one of three main grapes in Arizona that the color is affected by the intensity of your monsoon storms. So when you have a very wet, heavy monsoon like this year, at least here in the Verde Valley, and Wilcox has been kind of hit or miss. And through it, I hear it's been... Oh, here we go. And it's a hit. <laughs> Literally. Luckily, the, luckily right. the, uh, we're under the eaves here, so we'll be fine. The laptop is under the eaves. I'm worried about your camera. Yeah, I think I might grab it in a second. We'll see. We'll see if it just is a lingering thing. I mean, it's not, it's not overwhelming yet. Yeah. <laughs> no, it looks like it's picking up though. Maybe I'll just grab it quick. Yeah. But anyway, Sangiovese, when you get a very heavy monsoon season, is going to be very, very light. Um, actually, a really excellent example of that in comparison would be if we decide to crack open the uh, 2012. Sangio from Passion, because that was from Fort Bowie, and that year Fort Bowie got slammed with heavy, heavy monsoon. Um, so it's very, very pale compared to this. 2011, down in Wilcox anyway, was pretty dry. That's, that's this one. Mm -hmm. this is, uh, so this is, I know, a state fruit from Golden Rule. I don't know who the winemaker was. Uh, oh! Wow, it actually says on the label. That's like a first and rare for most Arizona wines. Um, well, not rare for most Arizona wines, but it's kind of difficult. Uh, Tim White was the winemaker. Um, so it was at Stronghold and, uh, at the Stronghold facility that this was made then. That was 2011, uh, Tim White was there. Uh, back then the vineyard manager, according to the label, is Don Sobey, who I've never met. Where's Tim White now? Uh, Tim White is working at Caduceus and as well as starting up his own... Second label called Hidden Hand, and that's going to be a, a tasting room near downtown uh, Old Town, Cottonwood, and it's in the old Masonic Lodge. So there's a lot of Masonic imagery on the labels, and I have one of the bottles, uh, his Malvasia, of course. <laughs> <laughs> I 
like I'd have any of the others, although I did taste the Petite Syrah with a podcast, which you listened to and edited, I mm-hmm. think. And he also has a Tempranillo that's going to come out, too. And a few others I think he's going to work on. But uh, that's where he is now. He wasn't strong-holding and bouncing around there. Started in Virginia, from what I remember. I like that you have the matching glass, too. I didn't notice that until just now. That's yeah, the, the only Golden Rule Vineyard glass I have. and so. Uh, do, you, do, you have, do you usually do that with every wine that you drink? You try to drink it out of the, the, the logo? I try. Um, it's not always the best glass for that wine, unfortunately. Like, you know, if, say, this was their Sangiovese Rosé, this would be, like, the worst possible glass for uh, a Rosé. Well, not the worst possible glass. There are worst possible ones um but i try especially for when i'm doing the photography for the blog because that way it's extra advertisement for them extra incentive for them to share it on their social media as well you know it's their wine and their glass and here i am talking about it yeah i mean you did that with with my my glass too yeah before I like your glass. It's a good. It's a good little glass. It was the cheapest it one to get, really. <laughs> it, it works for a whole variety of wines. Apparently, they're they're badass tough. The only yeah, people I, I know... dropped it down by the creek once, and it didn't shatter or chip at all. I was impressed. On the stone or in the water? Uh, on the concrete. On the concrete. Wow. Because there's basically something. a concrete embankment that kind of crosses uh, where it's been paved. Out, where the dip, where the Bitter Creek flows down has been paved. Rain's picking up. You can try to chase us off. I love desert rain. I was just thinking about that this morning. Um, The desert rain is just one of the best feeling things that, you know, you can ever experience. After it's done, or even during... The process of the rain is just like the whole land is just relieved and you can feel that relief in the air. I just love taking walks in the desert when it's raining or just being outside. Same here. I mean, this whole monsoon season, it's honestly one of the reasons why I came back after the two years in Boston because I miss the monsoon. I miss those storms. Like I missed being able to also see 50, 60, 70 miles and Various directions. Right. And it's been raining so much I haven't been watering the vines, which is probably why they're looking rather peckish. Well, I've kind of been purposely abusing the Concord because it's a Concord. <laughs> well, that one right there has got a pretty good cluster on it already. And that's Cub Franc. Um, actually, that one's grafted onto a uh, Vitis Arizonica rootstock. What does that mean? Uh, it's the native canyon grape. Arizona. Oh, okay. There's some people experimenting with it. Um, the problem I've heard with it is that um, because that grape is not hermaphroditic, you would need male and female plants in order for it to actually work in a vineyard. So uh, that one was clearly a female plant. The other one on Arizonica rootstock is clearly a male because it didn't produce any clusters. But, is yeah. that disappointing, or do you no, still just, like it there because, you know... I still like it there, and eventually it's going to go, theoretically, my own vineyard. Theoretically, once I get the land and everything. You are getting some splashes there on your laptop. 
going to move that in a little bit more. Trying to duck and cover underneath the... Uh... I'll have one soaked pant leg, but whatever. Yeah. Me too. It's, it's pants, It's not, and it's rain. It's not you know, sulfuric acid or something. I hate when that happens. Yeah, it just really puts a damper on things, doesn't it? <laughs> so what are you getting on the nose of the Sangiovese? It was like, I don't know, was it a caramel? Caramely sort of thing or a licorice? I do get some sort of caramel licorice, a little bit of starriness. I get that sort of pipe tobacco note that I get that, in a lot yep. of Wilcox Sangiovese. That's why I kind of wanted to go with one of the, uh, one of the, I don't know, either a Tempranillo or a Sangiovese or a Rosé because those are my favorite ones down here. Well, the Syrah is my absolute favorite, um, but I feel like I want to try something new too for this. And plus, because your collection is out of this world for Arizona. I wouldn't say I have the biggest collection of Arizona wines. I mean, someone out there must have more. I've just, you know, I spend more money on caring for my wines than I actually do for myself. So, it's like, oh, I'll have, oh, oh the new Kindred is out. Okay, I'll buy a bottle of that and eat ramen for the rest of the week. <laughs> Same thing with my music. And, 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 then, and then hoard it for forever and ever and ever. Same thing with my music. I'm I'm just on the road and I'm just eating canned foods. I, I this is bread that I made. Oh, so, nice. Um, you know, I'm just trying to cut as many corners as I can to save as much money as possible so I can do this. I'm also getting a little bit of sort of um, cherry and well, definitely cherry. Not so much plum, but like a strawberry raspberry. Yeah, I really do think that Sangiovese is one of our five best red grapes here, hands down. And I have to say that Arizona Sangiovese is the best Sangiovese I've had outside of Italy. Wow. And the very first wine I ever had was a Sangiovese, so it's, it's every Sangiovese is like hanging out with an old friend. So it must have been a, it must have been a good first wine then. It was. Uh, it was a Chianti Classico. I forget the vintage. I want to say it was a 1999. I don't remember the vineyard. And I obviously don't have a picture of it. Was, you know, I was 15 and wasn't taking pictures of every wine that I drank then. And I remember the taste profile. I remember the taste profile of every single wine I've ever had. Even the ones that I drank... At the various hipster varietal parties where I was shit-faced. <laughs> That's a good talent to have. Yeah, it's, it's a good talent to have. It's not exactly useful, but... It's useful when you want to start a podcast about wine. This is true. <laughs> Mine, I was... Um, I, I've told you that story, right? I mean, maybe not me personally, but I may, might have heard it on the podcast before. Um, I mean, I'm down for hearing it. Camping trip up near Seligman and uh, my dad's friend pulls out this bottle of Chianti Classico for the spaghetti sauce that he's making from scratch in the middle of the Arizona woods and 
uncorks it and pours about a third of it into the sauce and takes a swig and hands me the bottle. Says, here you go, lad. You know, be a good lad and finish this off for me. Go to my dad. He goes, you know, or rather I say to him, you know, hey, dad, you know, Dan gave me this bottle of Chianti Classico. Can I drink it? And you're under what passes for adult supervision. Go ahead. <laughs> Had it with a meal was great, but what really clinched it was uh, drinking it under the first time the Northern Lights were seen in Arizona in 80 years. Wow. That and definitely he, makes a memory. And here I was, sipping this Chianti Classico under the stars and the Northern Lights, listening to Owls and Coyotes going, fuck, did I just peak at 15? I think I just peaked at 15. Yep. Oh, well. So every Sangiovese kind of takes me back to that. That, that is a good memory to come back to with a, with a wine. This is also has, and I don't know if um, your audience knows that uh, I'm really not an expert or anything. I'm just a traveling musician who likes wine. Um, so I'm probably not the best person to be talking to about this, but I always catch like a little bit of dust, like the Arizona sort of desert. In, in the reds, in the Sangioveses and Syrahs and Tempranillo. Are you, are you getting any of that? I do. Or are you just used to it by now? Or Oh, I'm never used to it, and I pray to God I never... I never do get used to that taste and that smell. But it's always there in the reds. I love it. And that's actually specifically something I get in the wines from Wilcox. Um, here in the Verde Valley, I get more of a limestone, sort of a chalky character, because it's mostly limestone down below us where most of these vineyards are growing. And Sonoida, weirdly enough, I get tangerine on everything as a terroir characteristic. Wow, what is that associated with uh, geography? You know, you know what I mean? I honestly have no idea what it's associated with uh, geologically. I have a theory um, that it's because there's a higher level of boron in the groundwater there that everyone's using to water their vines. But I can't prove it, and, uh, well, I probably could prove it somehow, but I wouldn't begin to know. And uh, The person who was going to uh, potentially help me with that has disappeared. But that's, anyway, for, for now, my theory on that is that it's because there's extra boron there, but... Um, in the groundwater. And I don't know how that would affect taste or palate, but it's one of those things that I know is specifically different about the Sonoida area. Um, versus Wilcox or here in the Verde, that sort of thing. I've noticed some orchards when you make that drive, um, but are there like tangerines or orange orchards in, this, in the Sonoida area? No, it's too cold. Um, and even the wines sometimes have trouble because there's usually a hard frost that occurs there about every third year that can kill off the vines if you're not careful. I know that happened last year at uh, Keith Joshua and Flying Leap. Oh, man. Their vines got nuked by a pretty heavy frost one year. Oh, jeez. The weather in Sonoida seems to be a little bit rougher, too. And I'm wondering if maybe that has something to do with it because there's almost invariably a hailstorm that occurs somewhere every year. It's usually colder and you run that harder, higher risk of frost than you would in Wilcox or the Wilcox bench. I don't know. I mean, it's, it's one of those things that I would like to know, but for now I know it's a distinguishing characteristic. And uh, for example, if we had 
picked up uh, if you had done the uh, Cracklin Rosie uh, Rosé, which is Grenache and um, Cab from um, the point it was from Sonoida, um, so you would get that tangerine character on it. Rancho Rosa is where it's from. Um, but yeah, that that dust is so evocative in Wilcox wines that it just it makes me whenever I smell it, it makes me think of all those times I've driven on those back roads in the bench mm-hmm. and closed the door while going into a tasting room, and that cloud of dust comes off your car and it smells the same way. And that's one of the things I love, especially about Wilcox wines, is they they speak of that place. Of course, that brings your your song into it too, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, that's what I mainly wrote it about the songs from Wilcox, even though it's about all Arizona wines, I guess. But yeah, the Cochise County reference, or just I just come out and say it. But yeah, Dusty Vines. It's what it's what it's about. It's why it's what I love about the the wine around here is that you just get that that dust. You can taste the land. Like if you were just hiking and the dust uh, rises uh, as you, with each step, you know, and that wanders in the air around you. You sort of take it in as you're taking in the landscape. So every hike that, you know, that I've taken in Arizona, I pretty much am reminded by every time I take a sip of the Arizona wine. It's, 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 it's special that way, I guess, for me. No, I agree. And uh, when I was living in Boston for two years, what I would do is whenever I came back out to visit, I would get a couple bottles of Arizona wine to drink whenever I was feeling really, really homesick. You know, because it, again, it evokes the feel of the land. And that was back when, you know, 2010 to 2012, when the wines weren't all super great yet, when there was still a lot of roughness to it. There's been a dramatic increase in quality just in the last six years. That's when I moved here, though, and that's when I got really excited about Arizona wine, too, because I had the Arizona Stronghold Rosé. It was like a 2011 or 2012, I think it was, no, it was a 2010 Rosé from Arizona Stronghold, and it was like, you know, they don't, they didn't, they don't sell it for very much. I know they don't talk about it very much, but... From, oh, the Dieden is lovely. The di- Yeah, that's what it was. That's what it was. I and freaking love the Dieden. I love it. Or is it Dayton? I have no idea how it's the actually probably Dayton pronounced. Is- I think it's dating. The point is, it's a damn good price for a damn good wine. Mm-hmm. And especially if you're industry, it, you can get, you know, a full case of it for under $50. <laughs> Which yeah. is very rare with, with any Arizona wine at this point, unfortunately. Um, which is why um, I was very sad when I tried the Provisioner Rosé. And I found it to be so underwhelming compared to the data. I haven't had that one. It's it's good for what it is. I won't, I won't knock it because, you know, it's great. It's an Arizona rosé that you can theoretically find for under $10 uh, at the supermarket. Mm-hmm. But it's it's compared to a lot of other Arizona rosés out there, uh, like even the data and like... Um, the rosés that you'll find in the tasting rooms across town. Shit, that's what we should do after this. <laughs> Just Get go tasting? And, and then go tasting. Hell yeah, I'm down. Because, um, you know, what the hell else am I going to do for the rest of the day? 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, depending on how it turns out, I might need to crash on your floor or something. <laughs> yeah, I've got room. It'll be a tight squeeze, but... Or I could just, yeah, a tight squeeze. I've been sleeping in my car this whole tour, so. So it'll be roomy for you. <laughs> it'll be roomy. There we go. Um, but yeah, it's it's compared to, I mean, it's good for what it is. It's a good, solid rosé. Um, but compared to a lot of other rosés in Arizona, it's underwhelming in comparison, which is unfortunate. Because there could have been a real opportunity to make a really, uh, a rosé that could have knocked your socks off. Is that a stronghold too? Um, well, it's it's a Glomsky label, but it's kind of his own project. Um, originally, it was going to be made with all Bowie fruit, but with the the with Bowie being torn out, I think it's going to be a lot of Dragoon fruit, possibly from Dragoon Mountain Vineyards, which is kind of the vineyard located between the Wilcox Bench and where this vineyard is uh, for Golden Rule, and just walking on the ground and looking at the ground on the bench versus Golden Rule, it's very different geologically. Um, and the bench, it's definitely a lot of finer silt. And you can tell that it was definitely, yeah, okay, this is the bottom, the middle of the valley, the bottom of the lake. Uh, versus Dragoon, which was more towards the edge. And there, there's not really any lake shore sediment. It's all eroded granite from the mountains surrounding it. So it's a different flavor and a different geology. And... Pierce, I'm I'm looking very forward to seeing what Four Tales is going to do with their estate vintages, and they haven't released any estate vintages yet. Uh, their two vintages that are out right now are from Pillsbury grapes. But they've got their first harvest of Tempranillo this year, their first harvest of Viognier, second harvest of Cab. I think their first harvest of Estate Syrah too. This year. So they must be a brand new estate then. Yes. Okay. Uh, they're pretty new. Uh, very new label. Very new vineyard. Uh, they named it after all four of their dogs, so four tails, four dogs. Nice. Um, they depict So far, they've depicted a different one of their dogs on each of the labels, which is, I think, awesome. That is awesome. Um, I just played at a brewery that does that with their beer. They had uh, a whole bunch of Bernesians. They mm. have uh, um, St. Bridges Brewery out of Moses Lake. Um. Yeah, and their and their uh, their their Bernese Mountain Dogs are right there on the label. What an apt name for a brewery too, St. Bridget. One of her prayers is I, I is you know I will I want a lake of beer for the for the Most High. <laughs> <laughs> and it's just like, how more stereotypically Celtic, of a prayer. Can you get There's something with, that involves both God and alcohol? You know it. That's what it's about. <laughs> and, man. and I say this as someone who's very emphatically Celtic and, and ancestry, and who almost <laughs> chose a, a different Celtic saint for my baptismal name. You know, it could have been Cody Brendan Burkett versus Cody Vladimir Burkett, but you know, the Russians also like their booze. Not so much wine, though. Although there is some great wines coming out of, I've heard. Out of the Crimea. I've tasted Russian wow. sparkling wine, but I've not had any of the Russian reds. Huh. Did you get to try any of those? I mean, when you were in Turkey, it, it was probably a lot of, of those kind of wines, but did you try any of the other like surrounding area uh, wines while you were there, too? I didn't that trip. Um, 
I have before, a couple times. As a matter of fact, there's a, a restaurant in Cottonwood that serves, uh, randomly enough, a few Bulgarian and Romanian wines. So it's completely different winelist from anywhere else in, in the Verde Valley, which is great. I love that. Because, okay, I can be like, okay, I've had six different rosés at Arizona, you know, at different Arizona wineries. Let's finish off at Farside Bistro for a bite to eat. Oh, they've got a Bulgarian rosé. I don't know what grapes are in it. Um, I don't know if it's indigenous Bulgarian varietals or, or say, Cabernet Sauvignon and Syrah and Pinot Noir that's been planted there. I don't know, but it tastes very clearly different, and it's just interesting to see how that compares. But I've done that before, and I love Georgian wines, too, and I really think that some of the Georgian varietals uh, would do very well out here. Um, Saparavi, especially, for reds. and That's Never a fun that one, one, because uh, I have an Armenian one and a New York Saparavi in my stash. You, from the Finger Lakes? Yeah. Okay, I think cool. you. I think you said you found one when you were there and tried it. Maybe I did. I don't remember. Oh, yes, I did. I didn't like that one, though. Mm. Okay. Now I remember now. Oh, geez. I'm getting water from the roof dripping into my water glass. Oh, darn. You're contaminating it's your water horrible. with water. <laughs> it was just which surprising, makes that's me, all. Which, again, makes me weirdly think of Dr. Strangelove. You know, it's, I drink only rainwater and pure grain alcohol for my precious bodily <laughs> fluids. <laughs> <laughs> hey, that's not a bad deal at all, though. I think I would have to have milk in there, personally, somewhere. I'm, I'm a big milk kind of guy. Milk is good. I don't know what it is about it, but I have to have my whole milk. Now, I keep wanting to try raw milk, but I haven't found anyone around here who does it, because obviously you have to do it close by. Right. And I don't drink enough milk to make it worthwhile, so it's like, okay, here's my gallon. I use it for, like... A bowl of cereal once a week, and then it would go bad. And she's like, "Well, shit." <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I've never had the opportunity. To, well, I'd never given myself the opportunity to do uh, to drink any raw milk, um, just because I every once in a while I would uh, work on a dairy farm growing up. Uh, we would trim trim cow hooves. Oh wow! Yeah, and it was not very. Um, it was not a very pleasurable line of work. So whenever I got the chance to leave, I did it immediately. <laughs> I didn't <laughs> stick around very, very long after I got paid. <laughs> so yeah, I never, I never did it. I was never interested in, in drinking raw milk, <laughs> I guess. Yeah, dairy, dairy farms are not someplace I want to be anymore. Yeah, I, it was good pay for 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 when I was when I was you know fifteen, sixteen, maybe fourteen. I don't remember exactly when I started it, but uh, other than that, I didn't really like it at all. I mean, the cows themselves are just completely dumb to begin with, and when you work with the younger ones, they're they're all just horrible. They are just complete bitches. You can't, you can't, you can't do anything. You're, you're trying to help them by, you know, um, you know, getting their, uh, their wounds on their, on their, on their feet 
or uh, you know taped up or or just trimming them or maybe not dehorning I can understand why they'd be d disappointed when you when you take their horns off but um, there's no reason to be that much of a of a bitch as a heifer so I mean I just I just hate them they're the worst <laughs> they're the worst animals on the planet as far as I'm concerned are the dairy cows <laughs> Oh, and clearly we need to get some cheeseburgers after this. It's vengeance. <laughs> Cheeseburger vengeance. That would be a very strange name for a band, actually. Cheeseburger vengeance. Cheeseburger vengeance. It would what... be. It would be a pretty interesting name. I don't know if it would. It would be a good punk band. Yeah. A vegan punk band. Vegan punk band. <laughs> Cheeseburger vengeance. <laughs> I like it. Yeah. <laughs> All these vegan song titles too, like puns and stuff. Yeah. I I I would dig that. That would be fun. I mean, I mean, vegans are fun to make fun of, but you know, they they have their uh, their rising popularity, and and it's something that I get I encounter a lot in the taste room is like, oh, you know, well, what's your vegan pairing for this? Which is one of the reasons why I do it on the blog. Because no one else is doing it. Yeah, that's good search. So that's good search uh, engine optimization right there. So, and that, and I'm technically kind of a vegan for half the year anyway because of my Orthodox fasting rule stuff. Oh right. Although, and the church fathers got an F minus on biology, and shrimp are considered vegetables. <laughs> well, the reason for that is, is less to do with vegetarianism and, and biology, and more the fact that the shellfish was the food of the poor. And so the idea is you're simplifying your diet during the fasting season historically. And so what do you eat? Poor people food. What do poor people f eat historically? And you see this with historically lobster, that was the case. It was, used to be a food only for the poor, and the rich would snub their nose at it. And somehow it's gone the other way around. Probably some good marketing along the way someplace. My, my. Probably, do you think it has anything to do with protein, too? I mean, where else would you get your protein um, back then? Beans, potentially? Beans, maybe, yeah. I was thinking, like, uh, peanuts, but I don't know how popular, I don't know where they peanuts, all grow. Peanuts, I think, are from the New World. But I don't know. Well, which says a lot of, one of the other fun things that it says about, I don't know, how Christopher Columbus changed the world is we're drinking grapes that were grown in a place where Sangiovese never was from originally. You know, yes, there were indigenous species of grapes in the New World, but Vitis vinifera was not native to the New World. And here we are drinking vinifera grown in the New World, and corn and tomatoes became an essential part of Italian cuisine. They weren't there historically until the 1500s. It's kind of like a, a cover song. You know, you got, a, you got, you got the Sangiovese uh, varietal being interpreted by the Arizona terroir. Sort of like, a, sort of like some famous guy, like, um, oh, how, what, what's a good example for a, a famous cover? Like, um, all along like, the Watchtower is the first one that comes to my mind. All along the Watchtower, but I was thinking um, Pearl Jam covering the Who. Oh yeah. So this is like this is kind of well, I guess that's both New World, but you, no, it's it is you got Old World and and New World, 
Um, Pearl Jam covering the Who is the Arizona San Giovese. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> I never, I never thought of wine in, in, in the sense of like a cover song, but it makes perfect sense now that you mentioned. But then again, I, I've never been terribly musical, other than you know occasionally Byzantine chant, which you know kind of has a very niche market, like church, and that's it. <laughs> church in a very esoteric weird group of people that you know are, share my faith for the most part orthodox people are weird I should know I'm one of them <laughs> wow there's still see. a little bit of tannin in here too not, not much but You know the tannins, the dust, that sort of a sort of cranberry. Yeah. Um, you know this this one is nearing the end of its. You know it's peaking now. I think. Um, you know, I don't think that this wine would age much longer. Some Sangioveses do in Arizona. Some don't. Again, it really depends on the vintage. I think, and it depends on the winemaker, um, and it depends on the clone. Of Sangiovese too, like case in point, um, Brunello de Montalcino is Sangiovese, but it's a different clone than Chianti, and Chiantis typically don't age as well as Brunello. So with Brunello, you've got the super tannic varietal, well, not varietal, but clone of Sangiovese known as Sangiovese Grosso, uh, which is grown in Arizona by Flying Leap. Uh, Flying Leap Vineyards, and then Maynard grows it at Albiol. I don't know if it's the clone at Zarpara or not. I want to say the clone at Zarpara is Sangiovese 171, but I could be wrong. I wouldn't quote me on that. But it's a, somehow it's a more tannic clone that ages better. And this, as far as I'm aware, the Sangiovese Gold Rule is not Grosso. So it doesn't age as well because it doesn't have that natural, as much natural tannins in it mm -hmm. that uh, Sangiovese Grosso does. Now if you take the Kitsune at uh, Caduceus or Flying Leap Sangiovese a couple of years ago, from I want to say the 2012 or 2013 vintage, you know it's going to age well because a it's grosso so it has more tannins to begin with, uh, and b they were aged in oak for longer anyway, which also imparts some tannins, especially in new barrels. In the rule of thumb and in the Brunello de Montalcino region, I think is you have to age your Brunello in new French oak for two years. And then bottle age it for either an additional year or an additional two years. I can't remember offhand which it is. So it's already got four years of age. This is the youngest Brunello that you're going to get. Wow. Uh, just because of that particular rule for it. How long for Arizona Reds um, can you can you wait before you know, the peak? It depends on the grape. It depends on the winemaker. Uh, more of the grape than the winemaker. 
And it also depends on the vintage, because again, um, some of the grapes are also affected by the rains tannin-wise, others are not. Uh, Sangiovese tends not to be, Cab Sauv is, Merlot isn't. Um, Tanat doesn't seem to be. I would say probably the longest you can age a wine in Arizona would be an Arizona Tanat. You could probably age that for at least 30 years if you really wanted to, judging does, by the tannin quantity. Does that varietal, varietal get its name because it has so many tannins? Exactly. Uh, it comes from um, the Madeiran AOC in southern France near Basque Country, basically. About as south as in France as you can get before you get to Spain, from what I understand. There's a few vineyards in Arizona growing it. Um, DA Ranch is growing it. Rumline Vineyard is growing it down in Wilcox. Uh, as well as, I think, uh, Kent is growing it himself in, in Sonoyna. And Flying Leap is growing it. Passion is planning on growing it. At least that's what I've heard uh, from Jason. And I think there's one other vineyard that's growing it down south in Wilcox. But I don't remember who off the top of my head. And it's definitely a varietal that I would grow, too. Because um, it's, A, one of my favorite grapes. B, a lot of the industry in Arizona say it's kind of the closest thing to a personification that I would have is to not. Because it's great on its own, but it's also great in blends and mixes well with everybody. I kind of get along with everybody, somehow. At least everybody that I've tried to get along with. That's the key right there. <laughs> I, I've, there are people I've not met and, and don't really care one way or the other because, you know, they're busy, they have their own things to do. If they want to meet me, they'll approach me. I'm not going to go and bug them because yeah. that's not the kind of person I am. Now, I've seen Maynard a couple times. I've never approached him, for example, because... He probably likes that. Yeah. He, he's, he seems like the kind of guy that's not really fond of... Um, groupies. Yeah. Whether it be wine or otherwise. <laughs> right. I hope you don't mind me uh, sort of munching down. Do you want to try some? I would love to try some. So uh, This you... is wheat. This is wheat bread uh, that I made. Uh, I used actually some... They call it Durango salt out of Leavenworth, Washington. Hmm. Um, it's hickory smoked. Ooh. So uh, if you pick up any of that, that's uh, oh, that's a damn good bread. Holy thank shit. you. Yeah, it's cheaper than than the grocery store. I just haven't eaten for a while, so. Yeah, when we're done with this, we'll we'll find a place to eat. I mean, I guess we could wrap up soon. Oh, it doesn't matter to me. I just had some Palisade peaches. I played in Palisade, Colorado. Oh, nice. That's uh, a beautiful part of the state. It is. It is really pretty. And, of course, they got the wine and peaches, too, going on there. Um, I had to pick up some peach wine just because I guess it's, like, the the thing that you need to get if you go to Palisade. <laughs> Makes <laughs> or at sense. at least try the peaches. I've never had a peach wine. I've never had a peach wine, period. Neither have I. I had to get a bottle, though. Um... I've had Pinot Grigio from there, I've had Syrah from there, and Chardonnay from there, and Cab Franc from there. Um, when I was out east uh, in Kansas for a wedding, I had a layover in Denver, and there was this really great little uh, wine 
wine thing in the airport. I'm trying to remember the name of it. I want to say it was called Vintages. Or some some wine term. I'll have to look. But they had a, like a small Colorado wine flight. Mm-hmm. And so I tried a wine from Infinite Monkey Theorem. Uh, they're solving them wonk. I tried a Cub Frong from the Palisades and um, a Syrah from the Palisades. I was really impressed by the Cab Franc, and I like Cab Franc. Uh, that and Petit Verdot are my two favorite Bordeaux varietals, and neither of them I think get enough love, and both of them do so well here in Arizona. Like, um, one of the other things that I almost pulled out, but it's just not quite aged enough, I think, to drink, uh, is the Gallia from Saculum. I thought about pulling that out, but it's just like, no, no, we're going to have to wait and wait on that one for an hour before we even do the podcast because it needs more age. And probably not in that decanter. And not in that decanter. <laughs> I would have brought out my good decanter. I have three decanters. I have this decanter, which is the prettiest one, which actually does not feature very commonly in most of my photos. I have the intermediate decanter, which is the very triangular, angular one, um, which works okay. But the problem with that one is it does not hold a full bottle of wine. So I have to pour a glass out first. And then I have the the good standard decanter. You know, it has the wide flange base and long, narrow, lots of area. Mm -hmm. But the problem is that one is not photogenic at all. <laughs> so it's never appeared in, in any photography. Which is unfortunate, but you know, whatever works. It's a, uh, it's just functional. Over exactly. Fashion. It is a purely functional decanter. Right. I hear a canyon wren singing off in the corner. It's my favorite bird species, as a matter of fact. I don't see neither here nor there. Well, the storm is. I think past. I can't see what's going on behind us, but it looks like you still got something across over there. I mean, you can't see the see the mountains. <laughs> oh, the storm is definitely past in front of us now. I don't know if it's going to hit House Mountain or not, and that might interfere with the Saval pick on Saturday. But, uh, well, I can't see House Mountain. It looks like it's going kind of straight versus to the northeast, which is where House Mountain is. Yeah, I couldn't believe it when I was driving driving here. I mean, I haven't been back in a year, but this is the greenest I've ever seen it around here. I couldn't believe it. I mean, it looks good green. You guys wear green very well. Yeah, it's not a color we normally wear <laughs> here in the desert. This was a good choice. Thank you for mm. pulling this one out. You're welcome. I can't argue with Arizona Sangiovese, so... I don't know, you said you liked it, so... Yeah. Cheers. Cheers. Yeah, I was talking to um, some, some people in Washington, which is a bar that I play at every once in a while, or I try to play at every once in a while. I think I've only played there once, and every, every other time I try to get in to play, either it's, uh, it's booked up or it's double booked, or they had already booked somebody when they promised me that date or something happened but uh still it was a place that i that i that i go and uh he, the guy was explaining to me that there are the two 
basic kinds of wine people when you come right down to it. There's the French and the Italian wine people. Is this a, is this a, a theory that is, has any substantial basis? Well, I, I'd have to hear what, what he defines as French and Italian. Does he mean style or does he mean... Style-wise, yes. Or style, or was it varietal? I can't remember exactly. But, but that leaves the Napa people kind of in the lurch, but I guess that's more of a French style than an Italian style for, for Napa. Because, uh, you know, they are using French varietals. You know, Cab Sauv is originally Bordeaux and that sort of thing. But I guess you could say that that's... The approach could be, let's serve this wine with food or let's drink it on its own. That's what it was. Yep, that's exactly what um, Which would be to. a difference, because the French like to kind of have their wines, from my understanding... You know, on their own. And, you know, wine should stand on its own, not need to have food to shine. And I agree. The Italians are like, fuck you all. Wine is part of the meal. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, you know, for me, it kind of depends on mood. I mean, we are not eat, drinking this wine with food, but this would be amazing with food. I mean, this, honestly, if we wanted, this would be a great pizza wine. The problem is there's not really a good pizza place in Jerome, um, other than grapes, but they don't, deliver for one um, they want to drive up the hill because there's one right at the bottom of the hill right no Vinny's or something yeah Vinny's is great but they don't deliver although what i've done a few times is i'll call a delivery into the number one gas station down below and gonna, meet them down there just meet them halfway <laughs> <laughs> like hey will you deliver to the number one gas station <laughs> i live in jerome and i'm really craving one of your pizzas and, and they do good hot wings too uh, I was actually had pizza and hot wings from them last night before uh, the night pick at Page Springs. That's rare out here in the West. I mean, I'm 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 pretty picky about my hot wings coming from the Buffalo area. So um, I pretty I have a high standard. So, but you saying that they're good hot wings? Admittedly, you know, I've never had hot wings in Buffalo, so I can't. You've speak. never had hot wings in Buffalo? No, I've never been to Buffalo. Oh well, that's okay. But, I mean, the only reason why you might want to go is to have buffalo wings from one of the two places who argue that they are they the first. They invented it. That, that would be a, an interesting pilgrimage. There's Anchor Bar and Duffy's. They both argue that they made the first chicken wing, buffalo style. And I don't think they've decided which one is, which one is better. They just both have two different styles. And they're both really good. My first tour, our whole band went to, to Duffy's, and we got a whole bucket. Oh, so good. Man, if you, if, you, if, you, if you ever go to Buffalo, you should definitely go to either Anger Bar or Duffy's or both. I was going to say, if, I, if I'm going to make that pilgrimage, I might as well go to both. Yeah. I would not pair this one with Hot Wings, though. Um, I would pair... Um, out of the wines that I had in the stash, when I say the stash because it's actually still sitting next to me over here because I'm lazy <laughs> and I haven't put them back in the fridge yet. Well, you have quite a pile there. I don't know if that's uh, laziness. It just would be time-consuming <laughs> more than anything. Um, out of all of them, I would pair it with the Wadeyes Grenache Rosé from uh, Hops and Vines out of that stash. And I actually really dig pairing rosé and hot wings in general. And it's kind of something I like to do. Wow, that does sound really good. 
I kind of want to do that with a Dayton now. The Dayton, I would want to go with uh, teriyaki versus hot, just because it's uh, of that savory flavor profile. Mm -hmm. um, but again, you totally could. Now I've made myself really hungry. <laughs> right. Sorry, I'm just setting up my camera now that the rain is done so I can use some of it for uh, the Expressway Balladeer series. So I'm always looking for stuff for that. So what, what is this Expressway Balladeer series? Oh, it's just a video series on my, on my YouTube channel that uh, I, I, I just document my travels everywhere. Um, and when I'm on tour, I try to do as much like touristy things or you know, interview the place where I'm playing uh, so that they can get a little bit of promotion and uh, the people on my Facebook page or YouTube channel that subscribe to me, they can sort of see where I'm playing and what makes that place interesting. Um, because I've, I've noticed that a lot of places um, that I play, like breweries and wineries, they all have their own story and their own reason for doing it. Just like anybody has any reason for doing art or music or anything else you know and and by sharing that they get to tell their story at the same time I'm telling my story so our stories sort of come together just like our stories are coming together right now yeah. that's what that's what it's all about so going back to why Jeremiah is my sound editor <laughs> Uh, I oh. guess you stumbled across my blog by... I, I was actually doing research for my Dusty Vines song um, because I, would, I wanted to make it as good as possible. And I came across your podcast on SoundCloud and I was like, this is good stuff, but it doesn't sound good. <laughs> like, I'm, I'm all about Arizona wines and no offense but it just it just didn't sound good and i wanted to i wanted to be like dude let's get arizona wine out there because that's the whole reason why i was writing the song i love arizona wine i wanted to help you get it out there by just making just a little bit better quality just by like turning the volume up a little bit more um no offense no none but none i wanted taken. i wanted to sound really good i'm i'm sort of a no a, a none prick taken. like i said i uh, i know wine <laughs> i don't know really that much about technology and i was using a well it was a decent mic cuz a, a friend of mine got it and then i left it at the freaking uh Yavapai College, uh, or not, you know, the, the last wine symposium. Oh, you left it there? And so I was like, fuck! Oh, damn. So I had to buy a new one. I remember editing that one, too. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, they're like, oh, we don't know what happened to it. So clearly sure someone walked off with it. Or they kept it for themselves to use, which, you know, whatever, okay? Free donation to the college, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, good luck getting a sponsorship out of them now, though. <laughs> yeah, it's like, oh, you took my microphone. No, I, I actually I really love what the Southwest Wine Center is doing, and uh, um, I think that that's an essential part and going to be the the keystone for the future of Arizona wine, because Arizona wine is kind of passed historically from one Zen master to the next, um, where one master trains the next generation, and then so on and so forth, and then that generation learns from the mistakes of the first master and then so on and so forth. Like a great example of that is actually in the Verde Valley. Uh, the first guy to do Verde Valley wine post-prohibition 
was a gentleman by the name of John Marcus. Very entertaining character. Um, but he had his own quirks and stuff when it came to winemaking. And, you know, as low of sulfites as possible, as natural as possible, biodynamic. Um, let's use no pesticides and have, you know, half the vineyard eaten in a year. Right. Um, sort of thing. But he taught Maynard, Glomsky, Rod Snap, Freitas, someone else in the Verde Valley. I can't remember who the fifth person was because they left and went elsewhere. Um, I want to say it was Darren Evans uh, who left and now is actually doing wines in St. George. Oh, wow. He has a vineyard there um, growing Mulvacea and a few other things. Um, again, this is a story I've heard. I, it could be wrong, but it makes for a great story nonetheless. Um, so anyway, you have Maynard, Glomsky, all these others. They're teaching their people. And Maynard is heavily involved with the Southwest Wine Center. And you know, he's done a lot of work there with them and done a lot of donation and money efforts and a lot to get that off the ground. You know, Glomsky has his own followers and so on and so forth. And then you have the people that are coming in from outside the Verde Valley that are sneaking in doing their own thing, like... Um, Pillsbury? Pillsbury's down south. Uh, he's growing oh. exclusively down south. Oh, okay, I got you. Uh, so he's part of that southern tradition. Uh, but his winemaker is coming from kind of outside, even though he's originally from Arizona. That's uh, James Callahan. Uh, great wines. If you ever see any of his wines, his specific label, Rune, is amazing. Best Syrah in the state is the wild Syrah, in my opinion. Oh, I'll have to try it. I haven't uh, tried that one yet. But so you have basically Maynard and Glomsky and all these others training this next generation of winemakers. And key among that is going to be the Southwest Wine Center. And then from there, you know, that tradition is going to spread across the state because you've got a lot of people there that not all of them will probably end up making Arizona wine. Some of them will probably end up in Oregon or Texas or Colorado or after global warming, what the fuck, maybe Kansas or Nebraska. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> Or New York, because there's vinifera wines in New York. And so from there on, it's going to spread across this whole, you know, tradition, which also weirdly enough reminds me of uh, almost like a religious tradition, where you have the, the founders of that religious tradition, and then their followers, and then their followers' followers, and so on and so forth, spreading on, holding on to the traditions which they've been taught, at the same time potentially tweaking them for, for local usage. You know, for example, in Russia, uh, you know, in Greece, you don't eat fish at all during the Great Fast. In Russia, you do. In Greece, traditionally during the Great Fast, you don't drink beer because beer is kind of alcohol. But a Russian synod rule, beer is not. It's not grapes. It's not alcohol. It doesn't count during the fast. It's it's liquid wheat. Yeah, it's just bread. It's just bread that's been turned to liquid. Please, <laughs> do you have more bread? Yeah, please. <laughs> Help that's, yourself. That's damn good bread. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, there's no alcohol in it. <laughs> well, we've got the wine. Yep. Well, have you actually been to uh, that brewery down Cottonwood? Which one? That brewery. Literally, that's Oh, that's no, the name. I haven't been there. Oh, they've got some Obviously, if I, if I respond like that. <laughs> I think that's honestly one of the reasons why they came up with that name. Is, is, is like, so it's that like... brewery? Which brewery? That brewery. What brewery? No, that brewery. 
actually just celebrated their two-year anniversary and pretty much all of the Verde Valley winemaking community with the exception of Maynard Glomsky and Michael Pierce and okay so some of the Verde Valley wine community was also there drinking which proves the adage that it takes a lot of good beer to make good wine I like that I feel like that should be on a um, that should be on one of those wooden pallet things that they paint at Bed Bath & Beyond where they put those sayings yes <laughs> I think that should be on one of those it would be a truer saying than some of the ones that are there right for sure <laughs> Mm. It's just the spread also has just the right amount of sweetness to it too, which is great. Washington honey. Mm. I don't know where it came from. It wasn't. I didn't use any really expensive honey for it because, again, I'm trying to keep the price down for this. Um, but it wasn't like your clover honey that you just get at Walmart for a dollar or something like that. I mean, I have made a bread like with that, but I just didn't have any. No, there's actually a guy down in Camp Verde who moved here specifically because he thought this would be a great terrain. I, he actually used the word tawar, I think, for bread because he wanted to source local yeasts in the air and make like local sourdough strains and everything. Just the yeast? Mm -hmm. Or did he do, are there like um, grain farmers around here too? There's a few, but not many. Even down in Wilcox, there's not many. And actually, I was talking to Mark Barras of Flying Leap about that, and he's like, "No, we're most of the local wheat strains don't seem to do too well for making alcohol because he want, one of the things that they're doing in the distillery is making whiskey." Mm -hmm. Apparently, it does make a good whiskey or something. Or same with the local strains of corn or something, which I think would be awesome if they did that more often but you know, if it doesn't taste good then you know that's a very niche market that's going to buy it and so you're going to make less money in the long run so I can kind of see why you wouldn't do that so much yeah that's at the true. same time well it's kind of like dogfish head because they make all their money off their X minute IPAs and then you've got the passion projects which are all the ancient beers which are the beers from them that I usually like to drink because, you know, it's before I got distracted by wine and, and arguably in some ways still, you know, I was always interested in history, so. And grapes have been entwined with human history for so long at this point that. Yeah. It was one of the second domesticated, well, probably the third domesticated plant, you know, after wheat and barley well it all comes because uh you couldn't drink just stagnant water right mm -hmm. so that's why you had to make wine which kind of sounds nice i mean i wouldn't mind drinking wine all the time it'd be kind of dangerous for travel now but well also back then they would often cut their wines with water too especially in ancient greece and the romans did it too so you would actually at a dinner party be like okay what's the ratio of wine to water tonight and that ratio would kind of determine how raucous the party was. And there was this whole wine culture in ancient Greece that was 
in some ways eerily similar to wine collector culture now, but in other ways just completely and totally different and alien. And, and drinking parties and symposia and all these things and different drinking games and... No wine pong? Actually... <laughs> I was actually just going to say that <laughs> ancient Greek drinking culture reminds me of a cross between frat boy culture, between frat boy drinking culture and collector culture. Because you would collect these wines for these epic drinking parties. Because <laughs> that's also not at all what I do with my wines. Right. <laughs> so just coming down from week two after the latest hipster varietal party. Um, there was a game called Cotabolos, where you would swirl the dregs of the wine, the sediments and whatever, in the bottom of your drinking cup, and try to knock down a target. Wow. <laughs> that sounds like a fun game. Mm-hmm. That was one that you played this weekend, or one of the no, Greece that games? No, we, we, that was one of the ancient Greece games. Ah. I suggested it, I think, at one point drunkenly during the party, but I was overruled because that would be wasting wine. <laughs> <laughs> and also because modern wine, unlike ancient Greek wine, doesn't really have typically that much sediment or dregs. Right. Well, it was a difference in the style. Because they didn't have pumps to pump out, you know, off the leaves or that sort of thing to rack it off the leaves like we do now. So that was something inherent in every emperor. They knew how to do epic, that's for sure. Oh, no. <laughs> Do everything in moderation, including moderation. <laughs> it looks like that storm is halfway to Sedona by now. I took 89A down here. It's probably why I was just a few minutes late, but I had to take that drive. Oh, I, I wasn't complaining. I literally had just gotten out there, so. Yeah, I was about to call, but then I was like, well, I'm only going to be like five minutes late from when, from when, I, when I said I was going to be here. And that and I brought the books. I wasn't too concerned because it's like, oh, darn, I'll have to read my book outside. Yeah. It's horrible. Horrible. And How it's, dare. How... And it's it's Dune, so yeah. you have all afternoon. <laughs> which, 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 weirdly enough, also makes me think a lot about wines out in the desert is that that whole book is partially, when it's not about politics, it's about ecology. <laughs> and... This idea of desert culture and desert everything, and which makes me think of desert wine and you know desert wine culture and this whole thing. And there is starting up now this whole culture of Arizona wine. It's very different from California wine culture. It's very different from French wine culture and Italian wine culture. It's its own unique thing. Yes, that's why I love it so much. Especially, um, I don't know about now, but because I've been gone for about a year and a half um, but when I got here it was like you could meet the winemakers they were there you could just talk to them yeah. about it you know you couldn't do I couldn't do that in the Finger Lakes I can't do that in California even 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 Washington sometimes it's tough to tough to be there when the winemaker is there um, but the winemaker is there a lot of the times um, or if not, you know, he's easily accessible, like, oh, here's his card, ask him whatever questions you want. Yeah, and you can talk to them. And I think that's what made me realize that, that 
what people are trying to do is so similar because what winemakers are trying to do and, and sort of interpret the, the land through the wine and through, the, through their harvest of the grape is exactly the same thing about what some musicians are trying to do with interpreting the stories that they hear from people or the experiences that they, that they, that they have every, every so often, you know? That's, that's why I made such a connection here. I mean, I liked wine in the Finger Lakes growing up in that area, but I didn't make a connection to wine until I was here. And I think that Arizona will always have that for me. That's why, that's one of the reasons why I like this state so much. And, and speaking for myself, you know, someone who's been drinking Arizona wine since, essentially since I was 22, I had an Arizona wine on my 21st birthday, but it was from Cocopelli Vineyard, so it was horrible. And it set me <laughs> off of the Arizona wine for an entire year, uh, because that's how bad it was. Thank God. Funny story. <laughs> and I think I mentioned this in the podcast I did with Stronghold, uh, with Corey and John Scarborough. Mm -hmm. um, the vineyard that Cocapelli Vineyard used to own, Bonita Spring, is Bonita Springs Vineyard from Arizona Stronghold now. So the very first Arizona wine I had was a Gewürztraminer, and it was horrible. I had last year a Gewürztraminer from those same vines made by different people. The vines were cared for differently and all of these different things, and it was the best Gewürztraminer I've ever had outside of Germany. And it's just like, wait, you're telling me that these two wines, the worst Arizona wine I've had and one of the best Gewürztraminers I've ever had, came from the same vineyard, granted almost 10 years apart, but just different styles. And it goes, goes to show you also that you know, when the care for a vineyard, and, and I'm totally lost my point, but that's okay. We're just going to ramble on until we pick it back up again, because this is what we do here at the Arizona Wine Monk. I mean, it's just wine. It's not, it's not marijuana, yeah, I think. It's, it's, <laughs> which also, you know, I, I honestly think that it, as, as if, which, well, let's face it, eventually when marijuana is legalized. Here. Here, or in general across the board. We're going to see fights between heirloom strains of marijuana and corporate GMO strains. Oh, hell yeah. If we're not already seeing it, I mean, I don't know. I'm not part of marijuana culture because I don't really smoke it because it does nothing to me. So at this point, it's just like, why waste the money on that when I can buy a bottle of wine? Mm -hmm. <laughs> but, um, but I really think that's something that we're going to see in the long run there for, for what that prediction is worth. Now we've gotten completely off tangent from Gewürztraminer. We can go with it, though. I mean, it's legal in Washington, and uh, if you go into a, a dispensary in Washington, they'll tell you all about the different strains and what it tastes like, like the little hints that you get off of them. It's when you go and you talk to somebody at a dispensary, it's like talking to somebody at a winery. It would be like talking to you at Passion Salad. Like, what what would I get off of this wine? And then you tell me. It, exactly what I would get off of that wine. That's what it is like talking with somebody at a dispensary um, when they're trying to tell you about their, their, their weed. Which it's, raises, it's a pretty interesting experience. Which raises a very interesting question. Has anyone tried to do like a marijuana and wine pairing party? I, I'm sure they have. I know they've done marijuana and beer pairing. 
Which I makes know more it. sense because hops hops are closely related yep. to marijuana from I, what I remember. They do uh, they do IPA they there's actually parties for marijuana and IPA pairings. Why am I not surprised it's IPA? <laughs> Why am I not surprised? Right. <laughs> A because it's popular. <laughs> B because, you know, again, hops are You already related get a, to... a scent too. They're already sort of they already smell similar too. Yeah. That's that's so true. Shit. It's pretty interesting, especially leaving those states that don't, that it's illegal, and then going back into them. It's like, it's a big deal, and then all of a sudden when you come back to where it's legal, it's like, it's not a big deal. Like, who cares? It's, it's just like, okay, you bought some wine. Okay, you bought some weed. It doesn't matter. It's like, cool, you're going to have fun. Good for you. Yeah. <laughs> It's oh, completely I different. I noticed that when I was coming into Colorado, too, because you, you got Washington, Oregon, and that's, those were my first two days on this tour. And, of course, those two states are legal. And then, and then you leave that, and you don't see any dispensary signs or anything until all of a sudden you cross the Colorado border, and bam, there it is, recreational weed sign. <laughs> and, then, uh, and then I left yesterday. So now we're back into, and I don't think... Nope, I won't. I won't enter another state where legal, where weed is legal, from here on out, until uh, until I go back to Washington. Yeah. Another, I guess, talking about legalizing it on the ballot in in Arizona this year, but whether it's it won't pass because you don't think so. Arizona, well, for one, there's so much voter and election fraud in Arizona that you know whatever that's, the rich old people in Sun City want, the rich old people in Sun City get. That's true. That primaries thing was pretty embarrassing. God. It, I mean, here, I couldn't vote in the primaries because I'm a registered independent. Mm-hmm. So here I am sitting out watching this, for lack of a better word, shit show. That's exactly what I called it, too. And it's just like, oh, my God. It's like, it's enough to almost sour me of democracy in general. It's just like, bring back a fucking king. <laughs> Which makes me think of one of the, the things that... Uh, one of the last ruling king or princes in, in Europe in the Austro-Hungarian Empire before it got torn apart in World War One, you know, someone asked, "Oh, what's your job?" And he's like, "My job is to protect my people from the politicians." <laughs> and it's just like, well, shit, shots fired. Yeah, but wasn't that dude like so inbred that he had like two different length arms or something like that? No, you're thinking of a different uh, Holy Roman Emperor. Oh, okay. Um, before the Austro-Hungarians, I think that was that was not Franz Ferdinand. It was one of Franz Ferdinand's relatives, and Franz. Of Ferdinand, course, he was related. <laughs> well, yeah, because they it was part. Of, it was the there was the royal family of, yep. of Austro-Hungary. Was someone in that family who said that, and I can't remember who it was offhand. And every time I tried to search for the quote, I can't find it. And I know it's like I know I've heard this quote somewhere. Where the fuck is it from? And it looks like there probably will not be a harvest Saturday. Shows you my where that storm is headed. What do you think that's going to do to the uh, to the to the to the overall uh, wine that it that the grapes are made from? That it, now that it's uh, the pick is getting rained out. Well, I don't know. Um, probably again. I know that there's. Um, Cabernet Sauvignon in that particular vineyard, so that'll be a lighter tab this year. I haven't drunk enough Petit Syrah 
between wet years and dry years to comment. Possibly it's true of Tanat, I don't know, because I haven't correlated Tanats with... You know, the only Tanat vertical I have is coming actually from that vineyard down below in, in DA Ranch. And I have, I, well, I've drank each Tanat of the three vintages that it's been produced and released so far. Um, I can't comment on the weather conditions each time because those vines are getting older and older. And I think right now age is more influencing those wines than anything else. That's uh, good, though. The vines, I should say. That sounds like it's a good thing, at least. It is, because the very first vintage was released was the 2012. And uh, it was very light for a Tanat. And again, it was their first pick. The vines were only three years old. And then fourth pick so far is the best, I think. Or not fourth pick, second pick. Dark Brooding Tannic. Oh, it's a Tarantula Hawk. Okay. Noisy little bastard. Yeah. On the bright side, as long as you don't fuck with them, they'll, they won't even bother you. Um, it's pretty much a good rule for everything. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's a wasp whose sting is so painful that supposedly the best way to cope with being stung by a tarantula hawk wasp is to lie around screaming until the pain goes away. What about, is it as bad as a bullet ant? I hear that's the worst. I heard it's almost as bad. Really? But I've, again... Just listen to a podcast where where the, there was this tribe that had to um, put their hands in these mittens where bullet ants were woven into the oh uh, the mittens itself. So they had to stand there for ten minutes and not do any like you just had to stand there. You couldn't make a sound or else you were deemed not a man. And this is when when you're ten years old. Apparently, it's the most painful thing that I. I I also heard in the same podcast that this Australian comedian tried to do it, too. And he had to go to the hospital because he was screaming so much. Oh, my God. Yeah, that's that... that. Boy, they don't make us, us young men like they used to. Nope. Because <laughs> <laughs> the idea of doing that just is like, yeah, I'd rather just stay not a man for the rest of my life. Yeah, I don't need to stick bullet my hand. Elf. <laughs> bullet elf. Wow. Bullet ant gloves. <laughs> Do not need to do that. That is not on my bucket list. Not at all. Yeah. I mean, once, just to see how, how bad it hurts, just to get a little bit of perspective. But I don't need to stand there for 10 minutes getting, stun, getting stung, stung consecutively. Oh, my God. For 10 minutes by multiple bullet ants. Yeah, that sounds like a really great way to like lose feeling in your hands for the rest of your life. Right? Yeah. I'm surprised that... That's not that. That's not a side effect or anything. And then again, you got to realize that there's probably some people who would be totally into that. And these are the same people who are like, "Let's do 100% ghost chili hot sauce and burn off our tongues." They'd probably yeah. be like, "Yeah, bullet ants, bullet ant gloves. <laughs> that sounds like great." Yeah, let me put it on my tongue and see what that feels yeah. like. Bullet ant chili. <laughs> God. I, I like ghost pepper, but it has to be a small percentage of. The whole thing versus. I hear that. I mean, I like I like spicy. I like habanero. Habanero is my favorite pepper of all time. But uh, you know, if you add too much, you just take. Ooh, you got some lightning over there. Yeah. If you add too much, it just takes away the smokiness of it. Yeah. And it's just painful. 
I guess it's like anything, like any spice. Which, of course, brings us back to Dune. <laughs> right back to Dune. The spice must flow, the sleeper <laughs> must awaken, the wine must be drunk. Actually, on that note, we should probably get some food. And we need to get some pictures before the wine goes away entirely. You quoted Dune. You said the wine must be drunk. <laughs> yeah, but we need to get the picture, so that way I have a picture for the podcast first. <laughs> and then we can I, drink the rest, and I then we can I go food. And... <laughs> and we should probably close up. Yeah? Theoretically. It's about that time? About that time. Right now? Yeah, Righto. it's been an hour and 18 minutes almost. Well, gang. Until next time. It's weird because normally I'm looking at the microphone, I'm looking at the camera, and they're completely opposite directions. And you have a mic on you, too, so it's like, it doesn't matter. Oh my god! <laughs> there's so many. Oh, there's a rainbow. I know, it's like a horizontal rainbow, That's too. That's really cool. I've never seen a horizontal rainbow like that. What does it mean? <laughs> <laughs> it must mean something. It means the light's coming from a direction to produce a horizontal rainbow. Man, you just... I mean, I That's a buzzkill. That is a buzzkill. Science. <laughs> Science. Science is a buzzkill. Science. <laughs> Science ruining fun since 1568. <laughs> uh, I actually had that as a t-shirt. Or not, I've seen that for a t-shirt somewhere, and I had like a... A unicorn and a dragon and something else. And it's like science ruining fun or ruining fantasy or something since some random year in the 1500s. And I was deeply amused. <laughs> it's true, though. But anyway, we're going to finish the rest of the Sangiovese, watch the rainbow, and then get something to eat. Uh, until next time, gang. This is Cody, the Arizona Wine Monk. Jeremiah Craig. I should have had you bring your guitar up to do the song. I don't know why I was... We could splice it in later if you want. It's not that big of a deal. We could. We could. I mean, you are talking to an audio guy, so I could easily You probably even have a better version that you could just splice in at the end of this. Yeah, but that wouldn't be as, you know, fun or... You know, you got to play off of of what's going on. Yeah. Off of the situation. We could record it by the waterfall. We could do that too. Because it's way too far for any vines in town. Well, no, that's not true. There is a grapevine up on the 300 level uh, where Jerome Winery used to be. And it's a Chardonnay. Well, there's two vines. There's a Chardonnay vine and a Syrah vine. So maybe we could go up there. Before Is that? Who's, whose vineyard is that? It's just two vines growing oh. there. It's oh, not wow. anybody's vineyard. Or the town steps. Actually, the town steps would be good acoustically. Yeah, we'll do that after dinner. Sounds good to me. So, okay, now that we've gone through all those <laughs> tangents, uh, we're going to finish the rest of the wine, watch the storm, watch the rainbow, get some photos, and then eat. Well, thanks, Cody. You're welcome. That was a lot of fun. It was. Thanks for coming. Till next time, guys. Let me know what you think about this song. I haven't recorded it yet, but if you find any mistakes in it let me know because i want to make this as like factual as possible awesome all right this is called dusty vines
blood of the land is in the body of the west, and you can tell around harvest time. The fruits of labor make it a grand one to savor, along with the struggle in the vine. You can make it on down to the Cochise County line with the arid air in your nose. Taste the toils and the triumphs, feel the trails of the migrants without leaving to see where it goes. And I'll raise my glass of I'll raise my glass to the sky and toast to the whole desert away. Yes, the west is still wide when you look on it for miles But there's a new kind of gold rush this time Bring in the riches, straight to your lips It's the wine from this dusty vine It's the wine from this dusty vine This has been the land of the fighters since we learned what it offered And it's always rewarded the tough And these vines would make those old gunfighters proud Surviving no matter how rough For in this old desert you gotta take what you can get And get while the getting's good on the lands When the hard winds bring in the rain from the south You can get clusters that fit in both hands And I'll raise my glass of I'll raise my glass to the sky And toast to the whole desert I'm going up on the mesa with my thirsty vino And I'm watching the sun go down I revel in the land's beauty and the wine in the glass And the fact that it came from its ground and I'll raise my glass of high. I'm gonna raise your glass to the sky And toast to the whole desert away It's the wine from this dusty